please turn now in your Bibles or in your bulletins or on your phones to Proverbs chapter 4. Our sermon text this morning is Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. Let me read that passage for us, and I'll pray once more. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong, and they are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Please pray with me. Our God, as we come to your word, we need your help. I need your help to preach clearly and faithfully. We need your help to listen and to believe and receive what you say. We need your help to see your Christ in the scriptures. So would the same Holy Spirit who inspired Proverbs 4 so long ago come and help us? Lord, would you do your people good through your word this morning? Would those who don't know Jesus be given the light of life in him even today? We ask these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, one of the features of a good story is a plot with strong character arcs or good character development. We're drawn to stories in which the drama exhibits the unfolding of each character's identity. Uh, We love to see heroes and villains grow and evolve and change or refuse to change. So, for example, maybe you've seen or read The Lord of the Rings, It's compelling to watch Smeagol become 
Gollum and to watch Frodo become more and more Gollum-like as he carries the ring. And it's best of all to watch Samwise Gamgee prove more and more faithful as Frodo becomes a total jerk. We love stories with good character arcs. Well, have you ever considered that your story, the story of your life, has a character arc? Have you ever considered that every day that you're alive, your character is forming and developing and solidifying? Our text from Proverbs 4 this morning confronts each one of us uh, with the reality that our lives have an arc. They have a trajectory. They're going somewhere. Every day, each one of us is becoming a certain kind of person. And Proverbs 4 makes this point by returning uh, to a literary image that we saw earlier in Proverbs chapter 2, which we looked at eight years ago before Christmas. I'm sorry, just a few weeks ago uh, before Christmas. So if much of this sermon sounds familiar, it's because Proverbs chapter 4 and Proverbs chapter 2 have some very strong similarities. Uh, the image that's common to both of them, you might have seen, is the image of life as a path. Again, Proverbs chapter 4 pictures the choices that you and I make daily as steps along a journey, steps which accumulate into progress along a particular path. So look with me at the climax of the two paths that Proverbs chapter 4 lays out for us there at the end of our passage, there in verses 18 and 19. Those verses say, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. One path leads to ever-brightening light, an image for all that's good and true. One path eventually gets so dark that not only do you stumble on it to your own destruction, you don't even understand what you're stumbling over. You see, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 19, it urges us to think about our next steps by looking miles ahead. We're encouraged to think about today's decisions, this week's decisions, in light of long-term and even eternal outcomes. And once again, what do we see from Proverbs that we need to keep us on the right path? What is it that's going to determine the shape of our character arc? We'll look at verses 11 and 12. They say, I have taught you the way of wisdom. Again, friends, the good path is the path of wisdom. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. <clears throat> the God who speaks in Proverbs is eager to give his children wisdom so that our path might unfold in life 
and in blessing. Four points this morning from our text about this wisdom. Four points, each of them about this wisdom we need to stay on the path of life. First point this morning is that wisdom gets passed down. Wisdom gets passed down. At the beginning of chapter 4, we find we're again eavesdropping uh, on the teaching of a wise father or a father figure. But for the first time in Proverbs, we find that this father is instructing more than one of his sons, not just one son. Notice with me where the father got the wisdom that he's passing down to his sons. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says there, when I was a son with my father, tender the only one in the sight of my mother. Uh, what that could mean, he's saying that he's the firstborn. And when he was very young, even before he had other siblings, could be what he means. He says, when I was a son with my father, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. All right, you see this father is passing down to his sons the wisdom that he got from his dad, from their grandfather. Uh, Others have observed that this speaks, brothers and sisters, to the central role that God has designed the family to play in passing down wisdom. The very fact that Proverbs 1 to 9 is presented primarily as a father speaking to his son or sons. The fact that in Proverbs 4, we have a father passing down what he got from his father. But doesn't this indicate that parents teaching their children is integral to God's plan for how children are to learn about him and to be made wise? Now listen, I want to be very quick to say we should not be legalistic about how exactly each family chooses to do that. There's freedom in the Bible. But very clearly, Proverbs indicates that parents are responsible before God to teach their children God's wisdom. Parents are not responsible for every response their child makes to that teaching, but they are responsible to hold out to them God's wisdom, to appeal to them on God's behalf, to be wise, to embrace God's life-giving wisdom. The, The central role that the family plays in passing down wisdom in Proverbs That seems to be kind of a specific instance of a larger truth that we see throughout Proverbs, which is, as I said, that wisdom gets passed down. The father of Proverbs 4 didn't strike out on his own and figure out all that he knew about wisdom. He isn't passing down the wisdom of a self-made man. He passes down what was passed down to him. And we see this all over Proverbs The introduction to the book tells us that Solomon was the primary human author of Proverbs, but other parts of the book make very clear that Proverbs is a collection of wisdom from a wide variety of sources, some of which even seem to have been written after Solomon, some wisdom that got passed down through various streams, which a divinely inspired editor put together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in Proverbs chapter 22 to 25, uh, we have a collection of 30 sayings which are entitled, The Words of the Wise. 
seems to have been some sort of body of wisdom literature that got incorporated into Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 30, we have what's called the wisdom of a man named Agur. We don't know much else about him, but he was wise, and his wisdom gets funneled into Proverbs. Proverbs 31 is introduced as an oracle of a man named King Lemuel, which he got from his mother. So throughout Proverbs, we also find clear references to other books of the Bible, especially the book of Deuteronomy. We even find in Proverbs that there seem to be allusions to or parallels to older pagan wisdom literature from Egypt. Isn't that interesting? The book of Proverbs begins by observing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all true wisdom. If you don't fear the Lord... You haven't begun to be wise. But that doesn't mean that God's people have nothing to learn from those who don't fear the Lord. Proverbs itself draws from secular, as it were, or pagan sources. The authors of the Bible are very happy to appropriate the insights and the literature of those who don't know the Lord, recognizing that without the fear of the Lord, none of it is in its proper context. So the point of all this being is that wisdom is not primarily something that you go out and get on your own. Wisdom, not always, but often, gets passed down. If you want to be wise, don't strike out on your own. First, first, listen to what those who have gone before you have to say. Now, immediately... We need to qualify that point, right? Jesus was not a fan of people elevating human tradition. And tradition literally just means that which is passed down. Jesus was not a fan of people who elevated human tradition to the level of God's word or embraced traditions that were contrary to God's word or judged other people on the basis of traditions that were outside of God's word, right? Sometimes foolishness and error get passed down Two, this man had a wise father. These sons had a wise grandfather. Sometimes your grandfather's a fool. But if we want wisdom, we would do well to remember that often the normal pattern is that wisdom gets passed down. We ought humbly to consider the wisdom of those who go before us. So using the image that we've been given in this passage... If wisdom is a matter of staying on the the right path, the good path, well, if there are others who have walked that path before us, it makes sense that we would want to hear what they have to say. When I first came to this church, I got lost almost every time I entered this massive building. There were two ways for me to fix that problem. One was to wander around with my sense of direction probably for months And just, you know, figure it out. And the other was to receive a building tour from someone who had already been in the building. In my case, it was Larry McLeod, our then facilities manager. If you want to walk a path, you can be immensely helped by others who have walked that path before you. So my friend, because wisdom gets passed down, seek counsel from older Christians. Read books by wise and godly Christian 
authors. Uh, even just like Proverbs isn't afraid to draw on Egyptian wisdom literature, right? Don't be afraid to read books by people who are not Christians, to mine what they say for gems that are consistent with God's word. Uh, read books from Christians who are no longer living, right? Whose wisdom has proven useful down through the years, when you're interpreting the Bible, remember that God's word alone has ultimate authority. No tradition can compete or compare with the authority of God's word. Remember also that you might be greatly helped in understanding what's in the Bible by listening to those who've gone before you. We must not be slaves to tradition. We must not worship tradition, but we do well to remember that wisdom gets passed down. A second point about wisdom this morning. Wisdom prioritizes wisdom. Wisdom prioritizes wisdom. I think we see that in the content of the grandfather's speech with which this father passes down. Look first at verses uh, 5 to 9. This is the father telling his sons what his father told him. His father told him, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. That verse is really hard to translate. Some think it, it should say, the principal thing is wisdom. So, get wisdom. Next line, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She'll place on your head a graceful garland. She'll bestow on you a beautiful crown. Is he seeking wisdom is not like getting a flu shot. To get a flu shot, you make an appointment, you show up, you get the shot, you're done, and you don't really think about it anymore. Seeking wisdom is not like getting the oil changed on your car. Right? You wait until the light comes on on your dash, you drive a few hundred more miles, and then you get it changed. And you don't think about it again until the light comes back on. You don't prize your new engine oil highly in your heart throughout your days. But if you want to be wise, Proverbs 4 is saying to you that wisdom must be your priority. It must be your great goal and your constant desire. So my dad and I, we used to play a computer game together called Age of Empires. Anybody play Age of Empires? Such a great game. Really good game. So the basic premise of Age of Empires was that each player chooses an historical civilization. So like you could be the Spanish Empire, or the Aztec Empire, or the Vikings, or the Persians. And then each civilization sort of builds armies, and they fight to the death. So whichever civilization you were, there were basically two kinds of units Basic, this is an oversimplification, but there are two kinds of units that each player could build in Age of Empires. The first kind was resource gatherers. You could create units that would go and get you resources that you could use to build other things and other units. 
Or you could build soldiers, right? You could take the resources that you had and you could sort of create armies. You could create like siege rams and all sorts of things. It was great. Well, whenever my dad and I would play Age of Empires against each other, almost always, and in fact, I'm tempted to say always, my dad won. He clobbered me again and again and again. And this used to bother me. And what used to bother me especially much was when my dad would talk to other people about Age of Empires and sort of explain what the game was like. He used to say, yeah, it's really a resource management game. It's a resource management game. I remember thinking, 11-year-old Dave was like, no, it's not. It's a war game. You don't win by gathering resources. You win by destroying your opponent in war, right? But you see, that's why my dad always won. Because from the beginning of the game, he would use his resources to create a resource-gathering engine empire until he was unstoppable and could crank out soldiers faster than anybody else's business. You see, I saw gathering resources as a necessary chore in order to do other things. My dad saw gathering and managing his resources as the main thing. You see, brothers and sisters, wisdom becoming wise is the main thing. It's not an ancillary thing that you need to do in order to do other things well. It will certainly help you. It's the main thing. It's not like brushing your teeth or changing your oil or paying your taxes, right? Something you do occasionally along the way to keep things running smoothly. Wisdom is the heart of the matter. It is what we need most. I think this is why we see again, as we saw a few weeks ago, that wisdom is, seems to be pictured to these young men as a wife to be cherished. Look again at verse 6. The father says, do not forsake her wisdom, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. Verses 8 and 9. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Don't just make wisdom a casual acquaintance, the father is saying. Don't make wisdom a specialist that you consult when you face a particular kind of problem. Bring wisdom into your life. Wisdom will be your helper, says the father, but you must be her lover, you must prioritize wisdom. You must seek it supremely. The beginning of being wise is get wisdom. Run after it. Prioritize it. Make it your main goal. Uh, in James chapter 1, James tells us, speaking of wisdom, he says that if anyone lacks wisdom, he says he should ask God who gives wisdom generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Saints, if you lack wisdom, I know a God who is happy to give it to you for the asking. But James says immediately after that, 
He says that if we ask in a doubting kind of way, or as he says later, a double-minded kind of way, if we ask God for wisdom in such a way that actually we're not willing to do what he tells us is wise. James says to us, listen, God won't play that game with you. He says, let not such a person expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. If you ask for wisdom, but actually you, you want other things more than to be wisdom. So if God kind of indicates what's wise and it's not what you want, you're not going to do it. I, wisdom can't be a thing on the side. It has to be the priority. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ himself is our wisdom from God. That's why there's no conflict between Proverbs saying, seek wisdom supremely, and the rest of the Bible saying, seek the Lord, seek the Lord Jesus Christ supremely. Your pursuit of wisdom and your pursuit of Jesus are not two separate things. They are the same thing. Jesus is our wisdom from God. He is the person that we embrace and love and listen to and follow and imitate in order to be wise. That's what being wise is, knowing and having and following Jesus. And brothers and sisters, is that how we live? Is that how we think about our relationship with the Lord Jesus, and conformity to his wise character? Is it the main thing? One small litmus test for us in these verses. Once again, Proverbs really doesn't seem to mind repeating itself. A look at the calls in this passage to listen and to remember. Verse 1, hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. Verse 4, let your heart hold fast my words. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my words. Verse 13, hold, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Brothers and sisters, does an eagerness to listen indicate that wisdom is most important to us? I listened to a pastor this week talking about this principle of listening to God's word. He pointed out something really helpful. If you're a normal person or anything like it, when you're trying to listen, you'll get distracted. It happens to me all the time, trying to listen to someone, trying to read something, and my attention wanders regularly. Game's not over when that happens. Bring your attention back to what you're trying to listen to. When you're hearing God's word read or taught, when you're reading it for yourself and your mind wanders, don't say, oh, oh well, I wish I didn't live in the iPhone generation. Right? Bring your attention back to what God is saying to you through his word. It, if it were easy work to listen, Proverbs wouldn't tell us to do it a billion times. Brothers and sisters, we will listen. We will work to listen. We will try to listen again and again when we believe that wisdom is supremely important, when knowing that Jesus Christ, whom we know through his word, is most important to us, that is when we, we will listen to his word. Wisdom gets passed down. Wisdom prioritizes wisdom, particularly by listening. Third point this morning, briefer and connected very closely with the fourth point. Third point, 
Wisdom avoids evil. At the beginning of our time together, we noted that verses 11 and 12 indicate that wisdom is what keeps us on that good path. Verse 14 and following point out that one way wisdom does that is by the paths that it keeps us off of. Now look at verses 14 and 15. And notice, notice how emphatic and repetitive these instructions are. Verses 14 and 15 say, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, and pass on. A six-fold emphatic instruction. One commentator pointed out that the, the strength of the Father's warnings here, it implies how incredibly appealing evil can be to us. The Bible's so honest about that. And don't you know that pride and the love of money and sexual immorality and gossip and selfishness and the sense of self-righteousness that we get from nursing bitterness and the short-lived sense of power that we get from indulging our anger don't you know that those things can hold such strong appeal for our hearts? Right? In verse 17, as we'll see in a moment, the proverb says, there's a kind of food and drink that lie along the path of evil. There's a kind of bread and wine that are the repayment for walking that path. The Bible's so honest that evil can give what feels like a short-term payoff. And so because evil can be so appealing to our hearts, we need to be told, especially when we are young, do not, 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 not walk on that path. Turn away from it and pass on. Walk right by. Wisdom avoids evil. And the reason for that is the fourth and final thing that we see about wisdom this morning, which is that wisdom considers the end. Wisdom considers the end. Wisdom avoids evil, and not because there are no short-term payoffs to sin, but because wisdom is mindful of the whole story, the full plot line, and the trajectory of the character arcs and the conclusion. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a young person, first, I'm so glad you're here. Love to see young people here. Listen, when you are tempted to do something that you know is wrong, don't ask yourself, what would be most fun right now? Don't ask yourself that question. This is what you should ask yourself. Where does God say that this road takes me? What does God say that this road leads to? What kind of person does God's word say that this is making me into? Three things that this passage shows that evil leads to. Three things that this path of evil, all sin really, leads to. First, evil leads to addiction. 
Evil leads to addiction. There in verse 15, it says, avoid the way of evil. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Why? Verse 16, it says, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness. That's what keeps them going. And they drink the wine of violence. That's what they need to be satisfied. Listen, sin offers you a fake and short-term sense of peace and fulfillment that makes you more and more dependent upon sin. It is unsatisfying bread. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, it is Edmund's Turkish delight. Listen, greed makes you want more money. Living for the approval of others keeps you on the treadmill of earning people's praises. Indulging anger or anxiety, even privately in your heart, snowballs into more and more anger and anxiety in your heart and eventually in your actions. A sexual immorality, whether fornication or pornography, it makes you want more and more sexual immorality. This passage pictures the extreme of this cycle when you can't even sleep until you get your hit from sin. We mentioned this before when we were studying through Colossians. Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices, he points out this is why it is never, ever a good idea to tell yourself, I know that what I'm doing is sin, but I'm going to go ahead and keep doing it because I can stop later. What you're saying when you're saying that is, right now, I lack the will to resist sin. But after I introduce more sin, which strengthens my craving for sin, somehow then later, it's going to be less painful for me to fight and resist sin and to change after that. Not sound logic. This is why sin is never not a big deal, right? Some, some sins, they seem so small to us. They even seem like kind of cute and authentic. But Scripture doesn't talk about sin that way. Scripture says things like this about sin. It says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to master you. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply, It says, be sure your sin will find you out. It says, the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. It says, the mindset on the flesh is death. Look, small sins, they look small when they start out, but tadpoles become bullfrogs and acorns become oak trees. Christian, listen, don't let the badness of sin make you pretend that you're not sinful. Right? We, we talk about how bad sin is, and something in me says, wow, sin is so terrible. I had better keep, keep my distance from it and, and never let any of it be a part of my life. And then my, my stomach drops because sin is, <laughs> sin is in my heart, right? 
Don't let what we read here about the badness of sin lead you to pretend that sin is not in your heart, right? God has a solution for our sin problem. Marvelously, mercifully, Jesus Christ is more full of grace than we are full of sin. But we can't appropriate that solution until we acknowledge our problem, right? When you see your sin, Christian, don't deny that it's there because it's serious. Also, don't fail to take it seriously. Don't let it lead you further down a path that takes you to death. Confess your sin to God and find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need because of Jesus Christ. Talk to God's people and get their help. Listen, let me just, let me just ruin everyone's secrets. This is a church full of sinners, pastored by sinners, right? So don't be afraid to share your sin with one another. Look, all of us, we're so bad that God had to crucify Jesus to forgive us, right? That's how bad the person next to you is. Saints, why would we pretend that we don't struggle with sin when God's solution, his help comes to us when we drag it into the light? Sin brings addiction, and that's why it's deadly serious. Sin also leads to confusion. That was long second sub-point of this fourth point we're talking about. Uh, three things that sin leads to. Sin leads to addiction. Sin leads to con confusion. Look down at verse 19. It says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. One of the things that's most sad when you are trying to help people spiritually is when you find someone whose sin has radically altered their perception of reality. Right? Sin makes perpetrators think they're victims. Sin makes addicts who are ruining their lives think that they don't need to change. Sin makes unrepentant people believe that they are doing just fine. Thank you very much. And it's because the way of wickedness leads to deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. Look, sin warps our perspective. It makes us unreasonable and irrational. And this is one reason that Christians need relationships with each other, that we need the local church, so that as the book of Hebrews says, we can encourage one another every day, so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is convicting to me. Saints, this is what we agree to do when we recite our church covenant together at members' meetings. We agree to exercise, I'm quoting here, an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. So there's, there's definitely like a wrong and heavy-handed way to think about your neighbor's sin. There's an ungracious and unhelpful way to do that. There's also a gentle and a loving and a biblically commanded way to care about how your brothers and sisters are doing and to love and encourage and even admonish one another when we need it. Brothers and sisters, we need God's church to keep reminding us 
that the path of sin leads to deep darkness, to confusion, to stumbling, and ultimately, third, to destruction. Sin leads to destruction. Sin leads to addiction. Sin leads to confusion. Sin leads to destruction. Verse 19 says, they do not know over what they stumble. Uh, In English, that word stumble sounds pretty weak. We might speak of stumbling to the bathroom in the dark uh, when you get up in the night. Uh, The word here can just mean sort of to to trip, uh, but regularly in the Old Testament, this word is used in the context of total destruction. Uh, You stumble right before you die often. For example, Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 9, verse 3, it says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish. In addition, that word translated deep darkness, we've mentioned it several times. That word is a strongly negative word in the Bible. This is the word that describes the darkness of the ninth plague in Egypt. This word translated deep darkness, it's used in Joel and Zephaniah to describe the darkness and the gloom of the day of God's judgment. In the New Testament, our loving Lord Jesus himself is so clear that this is where sin's arc ends. Numerous times he calls it outer darkness. A friend, if if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can you see the wisdom of considering the end of the path that you choose. It doesn't take a deep philosopher to see that we all die. The God of the Bible tells us that the trajectory that sin has set us on is one that ends in eternal darkness and misery. Listen, if there are ways in which sin and foolishness are making your life painful right now, that is God's gracious warning to you about the stumbling and the darkness that sin brings forever. But the good news this morning is that there is someone else who has experienced that darkness. Uh, there's, There's someone else in the Bible, a good guy, a hero, Uh, whose character arc took what seemed to be to his friends to be a shocking twist near the end of his life. Uh, In the New Testament, three of the four gospel writers who record the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, they go out of their way to tell us that Jesus, although he died during the day, died in the darkness. Matthew Speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Mark 15, 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is the middle of the day. Luke 23, 44, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land. Until the ninth hour. Why do the gospel writers go out of their way to tell us, hey, Jesus died in the darkness? It's because, friends, Jesus died in our darkness so that we might have life in his light. 
Listen, the reason that sin leads to darkness is because it's a rebellion against the God who is light, the God who is good and true and gives life. That God gave his son Jesus to die for our sins in our place as our substitute. God gave Jesus as he died on the cross to take the penalty, to bear the darkness that our sin has earned. Jesus died in the darkness. And three days later, by the way, right around dawn, right as the sun was rising on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And now the Lord Jesus offers to change eternally the trajectory, the character arc, the plot of anyone who will trust in him. Your story, my story, they have narrative arcs. But so to speak, we're not the main character. If you're the main character of your story, then your drama is a tragic one. We are not the savior. We are not the hero. We are the bad guys headed for darkness in need of rescue. But there is a rescuer who has intercepted our trajectory so that we might end not in the darkness, but in the life and light of God. This is how Jesus puts it in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Beloved, listen. If you are in Christ, darkness is not where your ark ends. If you've been made righteous through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, listen to where your path is by the almighty power of God headed in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. It says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until full day. Listen, if you belong to Jesus, he has promised you that one day you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. However dim a reflection you feel yourself to be of God's glorious image right now, Christian, one day you're gonna shine like the sun. Light is to us intuitively an image of life and joy and goodness and truth and knowledge and the presence of God. And one day, God's people will be radiant with all of that. Christian, if you're in need of encouragement for perseverance, it would be well to consider where your path ends and to draw strength from God's grace to you in Christ. Until that day, until Jesus comes back, our Heavenly Father's desire is that we shine brighter and brighter as reflections of His image, that we hear His words, that increasingly we turn from the path of evil, that we prioritize wisdom, that we seek Jesus Christ, our wisdom, with all that we are. Brothers and sisters, that is what God is producing in you 
by his spirit if you are in Christ. Let me pray that he would continue that good work in us. Father, thank you for the mercy through which we who were headed for outer darkness forever would have been given the light of life. Thank you, Father, for the promise that your people will one day shine like the sun in your kingdom, Father. God, we pray, please, that as we continue to walk this path of life that you've called us to, that you would make us wise, that you would teach us to listen attentively to your words, or to seek the wisdom that your people pass down, or to prioritize the knowledge of our God supremely, to prioritize knowing Jesus most, would help us to be people who increasingly are characterized by turning from evil. Keep us mindful of where we are all headed. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give to them the light of life, that you would move them to trust in Christ in repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, we pray that you would do these things for our joy and for your glory. We ask them in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.